Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Anytime you decide to follow Jesus into service to him, you are going to be opposed by the devil. The devil does not want a single human being believing the gospel. And anyone who's going to take it upon themselves to preach the gospel or encourage the preaching of the gospel or anything like that, you can be sure of this. The enemy is going to oppose you. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Acts. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Acts, chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 14, verses 23 through 28, in a message titled, There and Back Again. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So today we're going to talk about what has been called the first missionary journey, and and more specifically, Paul's first missionary journey. And what we want to notice is that it was from this church in Antioch that Barnabas and Saul, who was also called Paul, uh, were sent out by the Spirit. Now remember, as I mentioned before, Antioch, it really became in so many ways, kind of the new center for gospel ministry at the time. It it eclipsed Jerusalem, actually. Jerusalem seemed to get sort of bogged down in all of this Jewishness and kind of legalism and stuff. But Antioch was free, and they were just about getting the gospel out. So it was from that thriving center of gospel ministry that these guys were sent out on what has been called the first missionary journey. Now, this journey took them from Syria. That's where it began. So Antioch was in Syria, and it took them to Cyprus initially, and then on to five cities in what we know today as Turkey. So they sailed from Seleucia in Syria to Salamis in Cyprus, then they walked the length of Cyprus to Paphos, and then they boarded a ship again, and they sailed to again, what we would know today as Turkey. They arrived at the, the city of Perga, and then they went on to Antioch of Pisidia. Antioch is a, not the same Antioch. It, it's a different one. Many of these cities, like um, Alexandria, for example, they, Alexandria in Egypt was named after Alexander the Great. Antioch was, both of these cities were named after the Seleucid rulers. So when when Alexander the Great died, four of his generals divided up his kingdom, and it was the Seleucids that ruled in Syria. And from them came uh, Antiochus, and so the cities were named after these rulers. So that's why here in the passage, you've got two different cities with the same name, but they're in two different locations. Then from Antioch and Pisidia, they went to Iconium, then to Lystra, and then to Derby, and it would be in these cities that they would preach the gospel and establish churches. So when Jesus gave the command to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, the, the apostles interpreted that to mean go preach the gospel and establish churches. That's exactly what they did. And that is really the New Testament model for missions. It's to preach the gospel establish churches 
So the new saints, those who receive Christ through the preaching of the gospel, those new saints can grow to maturity in the faith and gospel ministry can spread throughout and impact for good surrounding cities, towns, and villages. So that, that, that was the model that they followed. They would go into a place, they'd preach, people would come to faith, and then they would establish a church, a gathering where they would now instruct them and teach them in the ways of the Lord. That is New Testament mission right there. And all mission work, including mercy mission, which would be, say, uh, going into a place where there is relief needed. Maybe there's a disaster in some area. We, we've done that many times over. We go on what might be called a mercy mission. We go in on the, the tail end of a disaster and try to re, uh, or help you know, rebuild the community or whatever. Uh, but whether it's mercy mission or medical mission, medical mission obviously is taking you know, medical people into areas and, and ministering to people. Prayed with a lady this morning after first service. I mentioned medical mission. She had never been to the church before. She came, her sister brought her today. She said, I came just to hear this message because I'm leading a medical mission to Nigeria in a couple of weeks. And some of the things you said really spoke to me, she said. So, but medical mission, um, we do that as well. Serving and strengthening missions. This would be missions where you come alongside of existing maybe smaller churches or struggling churches, and you come to uh, serve and strengthen. But here's my point. Whether it's mercy or medical or strengthening missions, whatever it is, it all has to be motivated by love for God and driven by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation. Uh, any kind of mission that excludes the preaching of the gospel is not a biblical mission. It's not a New Testament mission. Now, I say that because there's always pressure coming from certain people in regard to gospel preaching. They, as a matter of fact, they say, well, you know, you shouldn't do that. You know, it's fine to go in with your medical people and it's fine to go in and help with the relief. That's all good. But you, you know, you shouldn't try to uh, convert people. You shouldn't, you know, share the gospel with them you know, just they're fine just the way they are. Well, the people who say that are generally materialist who have no belief in the soul or the spirit or anything like that. So they don't see any value in uh, preaching the gospel to people. But of course, we know that even though you might, uh, you know, help somebody externally, which is a good thing, if you neglect their soul, if you fail to tell them the, the greater reality of the salvation of Christ, then you fail to meet the, the standard of a biblical mission. So when we do missions, whatever we're doing, we are making sure that everything is always rooted in uh, the gospel. People know that we're doing what we're doing because ultimately we want you to know that God loves you, Christ died for you, and you can have a relationship with him. So that's just a little bit of a side note. Um, what I want to do is I want to walk us through these two chapters. So this is the first mission, missionary journey. There are five cities, as I mentioned, that they went to. Um, I, I wouldn't want to try to read through the whole two chapters, but I do want to highlight 
what happened when they left Antioch, went all the way to Derby, and then came back again. So let me just give a quick overview. And then we're going to come and back and we're going to look at seven marks of a spirit-led mission. So first of all, you have them leaving uh, Syria, as we saw, and they sailed to Paphos. They landed in Salamis, which would be the eastern part of the island. They made the journey. They preached there, it says, in the synagogues. Then they made the journey to Paphos, and it was there that there was Sergius Paulus. He was the proconsular. He's like the governor of the country. He was the Roman governor, and he was an intelligent man who was interested in the gospel. He wanted to hear. He had heard about these two men, Barnabas and Saul. He had heard that they were preaching, and he was interested in that. But remember, what happened is as he called for them, there was a certain sorcerer who obviously had influence, and he tried to prevent Sergius Paulus from hearing the message. He didn't want him to hear the gospel. And obviously, as a sorcerer, here's a man who's under the direct influence of the demonic. And so Paul actually pronounces a judgment upon him. He's blinded temporarily. Sergius Paulus ends up hearing the gospel message. He receives the gospel. And so that's where the ministry kind of leaves off in Cyprus. And they board a ship in Paphos, and now they, they sail to Perga. And then immediately from there, they go to this place, Antioch in Pisidia. And so what they do here now is they they go into the synagogue. So they're looking for opportunities to share the gospel. They're Jews. Barnabas is a a Levite, part of the priestly group. And Saul is a rabbi. And so it's a perfect situation for them to go into the synagogue. And so if we pick up in chapter 13, let me read just a few verses. In verse 14, it says, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch. In Pisidia, they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So this is where things start in Antioch. They're in the synagogue. And so here are these two men, they come in, they're recognized as men of you know, spiritual influence. And so the, the ruler of the synagogue says, hey, do you have a word of exhortation? Paul says, yes. And so he gets up and, and now Paul preaches the gospel. He takes the people in the synagogue on a, on a historical journey, much like Stephen did when he preached to the Sanhedrin. Paul just walks them through their history and he brings them to Jesus as the Messiah, and then he calls for them to put their faith in Christ. Now, as would often be the case, there in the synagogues, two things happened. The Jews, for the most part, were rather cool to the message. They, were, they, they didn't get so excited about it. They didn't see themselves as really needing a savior. They were Jews after all. But, but the Gentiles among them, they were the ones that were, they, they just thought this was the greatest news ever. This was indeed the gospel. It was good news. And they wanted to hear more. 
So that's what happened there in Antioch. They preached, and when they went out, it says that the Gentiles, verse 42 of chapter 13, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them on the next Sabbath. And so verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. So they found this interesting thing that the people that they didn't necessarily expect to respond were the ones who responded and the ones that they thought would respond didn't respond. So of course they thought the Jews would respond. After all, they're bringing a message of the Jewish Messiah. They're coming and and telling them that the prophets are fulfilled in, in Jesus. And yet there's a coldness, there's an indifference. But when the Gentiles hear it, they are, they're open to it and they're receiving it. And so almost the whole city comes together. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, We turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. And so that was what happened in Antioch. Now, as they were ministering to the Gentiles, once again, uh, the Jews stirred up certain people and they expelled Barnabas and Paul. They expelled them from their region. And it says that they shook the dust off their feet against them and then they came to Iconium. So chapter 14, now they come to, from Antioch, they come to Iconium. And once again, they go together into the synagogue and uh, they speak and a great multitude of Jews and Greeks believed. But once again, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brethren. And so this this is the pattern. This happens wherever they go. They're met with... um, an openness from the Gentiles generally and a hostility from the Jews, a resistance from the Jews. So eventually they're expelled from the area there in Iconium. And so next they come to Lystra in verse eight. And so it's in Lystra that Paul, he's preaching. And as he's preaching, there's a man in the crowd that he sees, the man's crippled. He's never walked his whole life. He was crippled from birth. And Paul sees something just in this man, maybe his attentiveness or whatever. Paul senses that he believes and that he has faith to be healed. And so Paul, then it says in verse 10 of chapter 14, he said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet. And the man leaped up and walked. Now, this is a a Gentile crowd here. So look look what it says. Now, when the people saw that Paul had... uh, what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lycaonian language, this is their response, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So they're saying these two men are gods. And Barnabas, they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitude. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and they ran in among the multitude crying out, saying, men, don't do this. We're, we're men just like you are. 
But, you know, think about how crazy that was. I mean, here, these are the apostles preaching the gospel, and the people think, oh, that's Zeus, and that's Hermes, and call the priest, and let's have a sacrifice for him. Kind of a crazy situation, to say the least. Now, once again, after all of the chaos, they once again communicate the gospel, but the Jews, verse 19, uh, from Antioch and Iconium, they come there to Lystra, and having persuaded the multitude, it says, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So this is how intense things have gotten to the point where they actually stone the apostle Paul. They think they've killed him. However, verse 20, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. And there in Derby, they preached the gospel once again. And then from there, they began to make their journey back, follow their footsteps essentially back to where everything originated. And they end up at the end of the chapter. We read that together. They end up back in Antioch of Syria reporting the work that God had done. Now, this trip, it covered approximately 1,200 miles. Now, most of those miles were on foot. Think about that. So, of course, some of it was traveling on sea, but, but most of it was walking. They walked probably eight, 900 miles. And this missionary journey was about a two-year period. So this was a serious, serious endeavor, taking two years to accomplish it and, and all of these miles. And as we can see, there were many positive results from it, but there were also many challenges. So what I want to do now is I want, I want us to look at seven marks of a spirit-led gospel mission. And we're going to see, and I, and I want you to grab hold of this, a spirit-led gospel mission. So this is something God is leading them to do. They, this is not an idea that they came up with and said, hey, I think we should go do this. This is something God specifically, he said, remember, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them. And then it says when they're being sent out and they were sent out by the spirit. So this is a, this is a spirit-led gospel mission. But what I want us to see is that it doesn't always turn out the way we might think when we think of a spirit-led gospel mission. Because I would imagine that one of the things that we would think if it was a spirit-led gospel mission, that it would be smooth sailing. I mean, after all, God's with us. God's calling us to do this. And so uh, it should be you know, fair weather all the way. It should be easy all the way. But that's not true. That is almost the opposite of what reality is. But we so often make the mistake of thinking that following the Lord and doing God's will and all of that, it's just, you know, everything's going to be smooth if we're doing that. Not so. So the first thing we see, one of the first marks of a spirit-led gospel mission is that there is satanic opposition. Listen, anytime you decide to follow Jesus into service to him, you are going to be opposed by the devil. He's going to oppose you. The devil does not want a single human being believing the gospel. 
And anyone who's going to take it upon themselves to, in some way, shape, or form, you know, try to in, preach the gospel or encourage the preaching of the gospel or anything like that, you can be sure of this. The enemy is going to oppose you. We see in the everything we just looked at, we see initially the resistance that comes from Elamus, the sorcerer. We see the persecution in each of the places where the disciples go. Now, remember, these guys are going into heavily demonized regions. These people are under the control of evil spirits. Their religions are all idolatrous religions that are, you know, filled with all kinds of wickedness and perversion and, and all of these kinds of things. And, and this is what the people are captivated by. And the devil doesn't want to let go of any of those that he holds captive. And so the resistance, the persecution, and we see that even the stoning of Paul, that's some pretty serious opposition. And the crazy thing is a lot of it is being instigated by the religious leaders. So the Jews are instigating the persecution. They're stirring up the Gentiles. So you've got false religion and Judaism at this point, and you've got paganism, and they're kind of working together to try to thwart the advance of the gospel. So listen, this is a reality. When we step out to serve the Lord, the enemy is going to oppose us. So just know that that is a reality. Uh, opposition will come. Secondly, there will be in a spirit-led mission, there will be disappointments. See, my point again is to tell us not everything is going to necessarily run smoothly, but don't assume falsely because of that, that, well, God's not in it because it's not running smoothly. No, God is in it. And it's not running smoothly because the enemy's trying to thwart it. That's what we have to to get. So there, there's disappointment. So here's the disappointment. In verse 5, it tells us, in chapter 13, did you notice it says that they had Barnabas and Saul, they go out, and they have, it says, John as their assistant. Now, this John is John Mark. And John Mark is the author of the, uh, the second gospel. He's somebody who we find references to in, in many places in scripture. But the next reference to him is that he leaves the mission just shortly after it gets started. So the disappointment is that here's John, who's their assistant, John Mark, and he gets discouraged, he gets fearful, whatever the case is, and he just bails on the whole thing. He's like, see, I, I can't do this, guys. I'm out of here. I'm going back to Jerusalem. And that's what he does. And this was a disappointment. No doubt it was a disappointment to Barnabas because Barnabas was his uncle. And Barnabas brought him along as his nephew, like, hey, come on and help us. You, you'll be a real asset to us. So Barnabas is no doubt disappointed. Paul is downright upset because later, when they're about to go on their second journey and Barnabas says, hey, let's bring Mark. Paul says, no, no way. We're not bringing him. He left. He didn't follow through. So there was that disappointment. And, you know, this happens again. You, you, you sometimes, you know, you have a vision, you're going to do this and you've got people around you and yeah, we're going to do this. And, and then as you move toward it, all of a sudden people just start dropping off. 
the month of May, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled A Woman's Battle for Grace by Cheryl Broderson. Have you ever found it difficult to receive, keep, and maintain grace? Without grace, there's constant condemnation, fear, and anxiety. In her book, A Woman's Battle for Grace, Cheryl Broderson shares how all believers can find victory in the battle against grace. Cheryl points out the enemies of grace, but she also explains how grace gives power, forgiveness, blessing, and how it will enable you to live the abundant life that Jesus promised. If you want to live a life in the freedom of the grace of God, this book provides practical instruction to help and equip you. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order A Woman's Battle for Grace by Cheryl Broderson. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Acts. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.